Hebrews in chapter 11, we read of a sort of a gist of the great things that happen in the Old Testament, miracles. And uh, when we read them, we see how mightily God worked in those days. It speaks about Abraham having a child when he's a hundred years old in verse uh, eight onwards, downwards, and how Moses split open the Red Sea in verse 29, how the walls of Jericho fell down, verse 30, how the mouths of lions were shut in verse 33, and how women received their children back from the dead, verse 35, by resurrection. And amazing miracles. And it's when we read all that, we wonder why doesn't God do all that today? Why don't we have some testimonies like that of somebody was raised from the dead or some wall falling down? But listen to this. All these people, verse 39, gained approval through their faith. But they did not receive what was promised. So when you're excited with all these wonderful things that happened in the Old Testament, remember that they did not receive what Ultimately, God wanted to give to man. And God, verse 40, have you read this? God has provided something better for us. Do you believe there's something better than the dead being raised and fantastic miracles like the sun being sun stopping and Red Sea being split? When you read these things in the Old Testament, do you really believe this verse? That God has provided something far better than anyone in the entire Old Testament experienced. And what is that? That's described in the next verses in chapter 12. These chapter divisions, remember, are made by man. So very often when you read, come to the end of a chapter, it's good as a habit to read the next few verses of the next chapter because you may get something from it. So what is this better thing that God has provided for us which is not, could not be experienced by anyone under the Old Covenant? You know, even the the greatest man under the Old Covenant, by the way, was John the Baptist. And he said he was only a friend of the bridegroom. He was not part of the bride. And we're called to be part of the bride. So what is this better thing that God has provided for us which even John the Baptist could not have? We don't want to live in the realm of imagination. We want to be real. It says here, Therefore, since God has provided something better for us, These are all 
witnesses, it says, what we need to do in order to experience that better thing is to lay aside every encumbrance, anything that hinders us from running the race and lay aside every sin which entangles us and let us run with patience and endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. So if you read all those verses together, right from 11.39 on to chapter 12, verse 2, together, what we understand is that looking at Jesus' example and following him is far better than any miracle that people experienced in the Old Testament. Because all those ex miracles were external. It didn't change their inner lives. And Elijah got depressed and David committed adultery and all the great people, Samuel's children were all wayward. All these great people in the Old Testament, they never experienced being actually able to partake of God's own nature. And if we don't experience that, which is being provided for us, we've also missed out on what God mainly wants us to have. If we only just hear some good messages and we thank God that our sins are forgiven, do you know that they had sins forgiven in the Old Testament? Every single sin was forgiven. I'll just show you that before we come back here. In Psalm 103, this is David testifying in Psalm 103. Remember, this is 1,000 years before Christ. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Verse 3, Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. So even if you experience healing in your life in answer to prayer, it's not more than what people experience in the Old Testament. If you experience forgiveness of all your sins, you rejoice that all my sins are forgiven. <clears throat> you reached 1000 BC. That's all. It's as if Christ has never come. The only difference is they look forward to the cross and we look backward to the cross. Neither of us saw Christ hanging on the cross. Neither David nor we. David saw it by faith. We see it by faith. He looked forward. We looked backward. And he could say, my sins are all forgiven. And we say our sins are all forgiven. What is the better thing? The better thing is that we can run this race. Hebrews 12.1 Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross. So when we look at Jesus and run the race, there is a cross for us to take and follow him. That's what it says here. Looking unto Jesus, who endured the cross and despised the shame. The shame there was in, you know, people laughed at him and mocked at him. Is that, do you really believe that is a better thing, to be mocked and laughed for being a Christian? I'm absolutely convinced it is. I've experienced it, and I say I would any day choose that, to suffer shame for the, same of Christ, for the name of Christ, rather than see the Red Sea split open or experience a resurrection from the dead when somebody I prayed for someone 
any day. And if you haven't seen that, you haven't seen the glory of Jesus Christ. And I believe that's the reason why we can somehow sometimes have complaints in our life. We have to fix our eyes on Jesus or looking away from everything else unto Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith. That means right from the beginning to the end of our race on earth, our life is compared to a race. And from beginning to end, we must have our eyes fixed on Jesus or like some other translations say, looking away from everything else unto Jesus. This is the secret of the Christian life. Soon after I was born again, I, I found a little, I got, got a little booklet called Looking Unto Jesus. And it helped me so much looking away from everything else, looking away from myself, looking away from other people, looking away from our problems, always looking unto Jesus. And I discovered way back then, that's 64 years ago, that the secret of the Christian life was looking unto Jesus. Dear brothers and sisters, don't forget that. We first begin by looking at him on the cross, as we have to begin, and see what he endured there, not just weep and, oh, he suffered so much, but to see something that happened there. And that is, the one who had power over us, which is Satan, was defeated. You remember Jesus said in John chapter 3, He told Nicodemus, when Nicodemus came to see him, verse 14, there are many types of, the, of Jesus in the Old Testament. The lamb that was slain when they left Egypt, they killed a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and the angel of death never came there. This is a picture of Christ, the lamb of God, killed and through his blood we are protected. But here's another picture in the Old Testament. John 3.14 As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What does that mean? Was the snake a picture of Jesus? Throughout the Bible, right from Genesis 3, the snake is a picture of the devil. So what did Jesus mean here? I can't believe that's a picture of Jesus. If it's consistently, right even, right up to Revelation, the devil's called the great serpent. And in Revela uh, Genesis 3, he's called the great serpent. So what I see there, as, as a serpent was lifted up, Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross, I see it as, see that serpent was a bronze serpent put up on the cross because whole. It, you read that story back in the book of Numbers, the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and they were bitten by snakes all over. And uh, those snakes were living. They were biting, biting them and many of them died. And the Lord said, make a serpent of bronze, a dead one. Of course, bronze was not a living one. And put it up on, the, on a pole. And whoever is bitten by a snake, look up there. And everyone who looked at it was healed of this snake bite. And Jesus quotes that here, saying that he would be lifted up on the cross like that. So what I understand from that is, 
everyone who's been bitten by the devil, and that includes every one of us, if you see that on the cross, that devil that bit us was defeated and made powerless. So that serpent is actually a picture of the devil. Defeated, made powerless. It was a dead bronze serpent on that snake, on that pole. And Jesus said, as the Son of Man will be lifted up like that. It, it's not referring to Christ. It's referring to the devil whom Christ crucified, killed rather. And uh, not killed, but whose power was taken away when Christ was crucified. And it's very important to see Christ like this. Not only as one who took away our sins, but that devil that bit us for so many years and still tries to bite us, that his power was taken away on the cross. It's a dead serpent as far as I'm concerned. On the cross, if I see that, the devil has no power over me. I've often told, you know, a lot of people are tempted, men especially, by sexual temptation. And the Bible says, when it comes to the devil, we don't have to be afraid of him. James chapter 4 we must know this. This is the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. James 4 and verse 7. If you submit your whole life to God, please remember this. It will solve many problems of yours. James 4, 7. If you submit your entire life to God and say, Lord, I don't want anything in my life outside of your will. I don't want anything in my home that will dishonor you. I don't want anything in my life that will dishonor you. I want to submit myself, all that I have and all that I am to you. And then you resist the devil. He will flee from you. He won't walk away. He will run. And if you want to know how fast he will run, it's there, the speed at which the devil runs away too. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, Jesus, when people came back after the Lord appointed 70 people to go and preach, Luke 10, verse 1, and they came back and said to him, in verse 17, Luke 10, 17, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. We were amazed. 70 people went out and cast out demons in Jesus' name, and all the demons fled. And here's the speed at which Satan runs. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. You know the speed of lightning? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If you have submitted your life to Christ, I want you to know that you don't have to be afraid of the devil at all. And if you're the head of your home, that protects your home as well. Protect your children. Submit to God and resist the devil. He will not be able to attack your children. Especially if husband and wife are united. The devil knows that. He knows if two people are together, Christ is between them. And he has no entry into that home. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. You understand what that bronze dead serpent on the pole is. That's where Christ defeated Satan on the cross. And this is an important verse, Matthew chapter 18. 
Matthew 18 and verse 19 and 20. If two of you, you know how my wife and I looked at that almost from the beginning of our married life. The two of you means my wife and me. But we had to be agreed together. That means there should not be any conflict between us. It's not just that we agree on one point. Agreed means there's no conflict. And when they are in that state where they are not accusing each other, blaming each other, fighting with each other, but in agreement, they can ask for anything. It'll be done. Why? Because where two people are gathered like that, verse 20, I'm in the midst. And I read that verse in verse 20 and I said, Lord, what about when I'm alone? Christ lives in me. My authority is limited when I'm alone. I, with that authority, I can cast out a demon. That's okay. But if I wanted to prevent Satan from entering into my home, I have to be united with my wife. And that's the reason why the devil tries his best and has succeeded in millions of homes by bringing some division between husband and wife. Concerning, usually concerning some very silly little thing. That's the devil. Don't forget that. Because he wants to prevent Christ from being there. You've got to be united for Christ to be in your midst. And then if you stand united like that, what is the particular thing we have to ask for? He, before he came to verse 19, he told us in verse 18, what you bind on earth will be bound in the heavens. You know, there are three heavens, by the way. In case you didn't know. You know, the psalmist says, when I see the heavens and the sun and the moon, that's one heaven. It's called the first heaven. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, I was caught up to the third heaven, paradise. So the first heaven is this universe that we see all the billions of stars and billions of miles of space. And then there's a third heaven where God dwells, which is called paradise. That's where... Every born-again Christian who's followed Jesus goes when he dies. So there must be a second heaven in between. And that is where Satan was cast down from. Satan was in the third heaven initially before he became the devil. And when he sinned, he was cast down. He was not cast down to the earth. He has permission. Demons have permission to roam around the earth. He came to tempt Jesus on the earth with... This is not his dwelling place right now. His dwelling place is the second heaven. And if you want to know where that is, I want to show you everything from scripture so that you know it. It says in Ephesians in chapter 6, our struggle, Ephesians 6, 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, world forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. Which heaven is that? It's not this first heaven, which is space. It's not the third heaven. He was cast out from there. It's the second heaven. That's where these wicked, evil forces of wickedness are. And that's why we find it so difficult to pray. Because there's resistance in the second heaven. 
And if you don't, be, you don't believe that Satan was defeated on the cross, and if your life is not clear in the sense that your sins are all confessed and believe that the blood of Jesus has cleansed you, you'll find prayer very difficult. You'll feel sleepy when you want to pray. And you won't have faith that God will answer. And this, you can cast your burden upon him and you'll still be anxious and worried. There's tremendous resistance there. But if you see that this devil and all his demons were defeated on the cross, and especially if you are united with your wife or if you're not married with at least one other person, you'll find that the devil has no power. We found that in, in our home. And I found that in our church in Bangalore, where I was united with the other elder brother. And for 48 years, I never had a single day when I did not fellowship with him. And the devil got no power into our church. Just two elders. We don't need hundreds of people. Jesus said two, but completely united. And the devil will try his best to prevent husband and wife being united. Something or the other. Because he knows then he gets power. And you know who gets affected when husband and wife are separated even slightly. There's a gap there. And the devil comes through to attack your children. It's your children. You may not be attacked, but your children will be. So remember that. And so if we look unto Jesus, first on the cross is a place where he was he defeated Satan completely. There's a lot of preaching in Christendom that Christ died for our sins. I heard that from childhood. But I remember the years when I went to Sunday school and church and heard about Christ dying for our sins. I never, to tell you honestly, I never heard one preacher tell me that when Christ died, he defeated Satan on the cross. That you could resist the devil and he will flee from you. Have you heard it? We need to pre proclaim it all the time. <clears throat> the devil's the one who prevents you from knowing that he was defeated on the cross. Which enemy will proclaim that he was defeated? So please remember this. <clears throat> That's the first place. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we run this race. That is the better thing that nobody in the Old Testament could have. They could kill the Philistines and the Amorites and the Moabites and all, but they were defeated by the devil. For example, David. <clears throat> if you ask anybody in the Old Testament, who looks stronger? Goliath or Bathsheba? Who do you think is stronger? Put those two next to each other. Goliath and Bathsheba. Everybody will say Goliath is stronger. But David could defeat Goliath, but he couldn't defeat Bathsheba. That's a warning. And there are many men like that today. They do so many wonderful things. But one weak woman knocks them down. Makes them lust in their mind and they get polluted. People who could kill Goliath. Some Bathsheba knocks them down. That's not God's will. God wants us to be overcomers. God wants us to overcome Goliath and he wants us to overcome Bathsheba too. We need to know that Satan was defeated. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we run this race. So once we have seen Jesus as taking our sins and taking our curse and defeating Satan on the cross and risen from the dead and ascended up to heaven, 
It says in Hebrews 12, let's look back there for a minute. We look at Jesus who endured the cross. You know, we're talking about the Christian race. Something better than all the Old Testament people experienced in 11. Better than the, all those miracles is this Christian life where we run this race looking at Jesus first on the cross. But not just there, but who's today, verse 2, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. So we need to, see, need to see Jesus on the cross, but we also need to see him today, risen, sitting, the right hand of the throne of God, have saying, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. That's what he said in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Now go into the world. Now if you go into the world without believing or knowing, without knowing that all authority is in the hands of Christ, You'll have a lot of problems in this world. That's one of the wonderful things I try to keep in mind all the time. Because we're going out into the world. I mean, we say you're sitting here today, but we go back home and then we go to the office and the place of work. We're back into the world. Remember this. Before you go out into the world, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Now go into the world. So when you go to your office or when you go to visit unconverted relatives or wherever you go where you face or you're facing a particular situation where somebody's trying to create problems for you. Remember this verse, Matthew 28, verse 18 and 19. All authority in heaven and earth is given to our Lord. Therefore go. If you don't believe that and you go, you'll have problems in this world. We can overcome. If you believe, even the young children here, I would say to you, believe that Christ has got all authority in heaven and earth. There's nothing which is not under his authority. All those little problems that seem to worry you and you get sleepless nights over wondering what's going to happen. Will you believe that Christ is all authority in heaven and earth then go into the world? We go into the world without believing that then we have problems. The other thing is looking unto Jesus also applies to the way he lived on this earth. And that's why we have four gospels. I read those four gospels more than I read any other part of the Bible. I read the whole Bible, but those four Gospels especially, I go frequently because there I see the way Jesus lived. And I know that the Holy Spirit has come to help me to live that way. There are many things I don't understand. But I see some amazing things. Let me see, show you one of these amazing things that I saw First of all, before I get there, I want to show you what I consider the most important verse in the whole Bible. Not John 3.16. For many years I believe John 3.16 is the central verse of the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I started there and we all need to start there. But then I found I had another problem. First, my problem was forgiveness of sins. For that, John 3.16 was excellent. But then I came to another problem, that I was defeated by sin in my life, by anger and discouragement, self-condemnation, and a whole lot of things like that. And unforgiveness, sin, bitterness, and all that. So I needed to see another verse. And then the Lord gave me some years ago, actually about 16 years after I was converted, John 17 
and verse 23. So today for me, John 17, 23 supersedes John 3, 16. Because that only tells me that he died for me on, on the cross. John 17, 23 tells me something for my present life. And that is, Jesus' prayer for his disciples was, I in them, you in me, Father, that they may be perfected in unity. And here is, so that the world may know, and this is the phrase that blessed me, that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, if I were to ask you, did you know that God the Father loves you as much as he loved Jesus? That's the thing that changed my life. For whom did he pray? Let's read carefully. He said in verse 9, he was talking about, he was sitting with the Last Supper. He had just washed the disciples' feet and he was sitting with the 11 disciples around him. Judas Iscariot had left. And he looked at these 11 disciples and he said, verse 9, John 79, Father, I am asking for these 11 people who have given up everything to follow me. These 11 people for whom I am the Lord of their life. This, these people gave up their fishing and that man gave up his job as a tax collector and these other people gave up various jobs in order to be my disciple. In other words, Christ was first in their life. So for any one of us, you don't have to give up your job, but if Christ is first in your life, that applies to you. And then he said in verse 9, I do not ask for the people in the world, but I'm praying this prayer only for those whom you have given me. For they are yours first, and you gave them to me. If you have completely given your life to Jesus Christ, I don't care even if you're a young child, I want to tell you, John 17 is for you. Read it. He says, I'm making this prayer for them, those who have given themselves to me completely. And for them, I pray that they will know, verse 23, Father, that you love them just like you love me. It brought such tremendous encouragement and relief to my life to know that my Heavenly Father I know how he loved Jesus. Amazing, the way God would take care of him. I said, Lord, do you love me like that? My dear brother, sister, you young little girl, little boy, do you believe that your father in heaven loves you just like he loved Jesus? It'll make a tremendous difference in your life. It did in my life when I discovered that 48 years ago. It was more than Christ dying for my sins. Let me give you one example. There was a time when Jesus was preaching in his hometown. Luke 4 and verse 16. I told you I read the Gospels often because I want to see how Jesus lived. And I'll tell you why. Because I read that my father loves me just like he loved Jesus. So I want to know what all the father did for Jesus. What he did for Jesus, he'll do for me. Luke 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth, uh, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, 
he entered the synagogue. I mean, from his childhood, he had gone along with his parents to the synagogue. But this time, it was his turn to read. Now he was 30 years old, and probably they had a rotation, and it was his turn to read that day. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. It was a scroll, you know. Those days books were in scrolls. You roll up one side and go to the next page. So he rolled the scroll and looked for Isaiah 61 and found this verse. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And when he closed the book and it says all the people were so blessed, they, verse 22, they wondered at the gracious words that fell from his lips. He was very popular as he spoke with the anointing of the Spirit. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? And he went on to speak a little more. He said, this is my hometown, but no prophet is really welcome in his hometown. Verse 25. Then he said, I want to tell you, all of you people in Israel who are sitting in the synagogue, picture this in your mind, Jesus standing in the synagogue and telling all these people in his Jewish people who felt we are the chosen people of God. There's nobody else except us who are chosen by God. And the, Jesus said, I want to tell you something. There were many widows in Israel, verse 25, when the sky was shut up for three and a half years. Yet, God did not find one person in Israel to whom he could send his servant Elijah. He sent Elijah to another country to Zarephath, where Sidon, Sidon is another country outside Israel. And there, a non-Israelite widow took care of Elijah because there was nobody worthy in Israel. Jesus was slowly introducing them to the fact that they alone were not God's people. He had a great love for other people. God so loved the world. They, those Jews didn't understand that. They said, we are God's people. There's no question of anybody else. So this is one example. And he said, I'll give you another example. Do you know that there were many lepers, verse 27, in the time of Elisha the prophet? But none of them were cleansed. Elisha had a power to bring healing to lepers. But now nobody was cleansed. Even though the great prophet Elisha was right there in the midst in Israel. But a man outside Israel, a Syrian, he was cleansed, Naaman. And these people who had just said in verse 22, oh, what wonderful words he's speaking, what gracious words. Two minutes later, I don't think it takes longer than two minutes to say what he said in verse 25 and 26. They were filled with rage, verse 28. You see what happened? Suddenly they got turned around because they were told the Jews are not the only people God loves. Uh, you guys better know that. And Jesus spoke the truth. He was introducing them to the fact that God so loved the world. And they didn't want to hear that. And they got up. They interrupted the whole sermon. They didn't get a chance to say any, anything more. They in, can you imagine this? I've never experienced this. Somebody interrupting the sermon and dragging me out of the pulpit. Jesus experienced it. He was in the pulpit and they dragged him out, angry, and they pushed him out of the city. I don't know how many people were sitting in that synagogue. There must have been a couple of hundred at least. 
Imagine 200 people ganging up and catching one man. And they took him to the top of the hill on which Nazareth had been built. And they wanted to throw him down the cliff. Get rid of this man who says that God loves other people other than the Jews. Next verse. He just passed through their midst and went his way. Have you ever thought how that could happen? That 200 people could gang up and catch a hold of one man and he just quietly walks away and they're angry, they're mad at him. So when I read a verse like that, I meditate, like the Bible says, you got to meditate. Because, you know, God loves me as he loved Jesus. And so, Lord, if I'm caught in a situation like that where 200 people gang up to thrash me or throw me over a cliff, I want to know how it worked for you because you'll do the same for me. So I meditate on that verse. And I say, well, what you, what could have happened? It was not that, you know, it says once about when Philip went to preach in the desert, the Spirit of God just lifted him up and t- took him somewhere else. That was a miracle. But that's not what happened here. He was not lifted up. He just passed through their midst and went away. So I said, the only possibility is that there was a discussion among the Jewish people. Now there are three or four cliffs from which we could throw him down. Let's decide which one. And you know, once they get into that discussion, they don't come to a conclusion. Some people say, this cliff is better, this cliff is steeper, he'll really die if we throw him over here. And somebody else says that, somebody else says that. And while this discussion is going on, 10-15 minutes, Jesus quietly walks away and they don't even notice it. He's gone, and by the time they have decided which cliff to throw him down on, they look around, and he's not there. What he did for Jesus, he will do for you. He will do for me. This is the God we worship. So when it says, let us look unto Jesus and run this race, do it, brother, sister. Look unto Jesus. See how he lived. Read these passages in the Gospels. And uh, learn something from it. Don't quickly go to the next verse. Stop and meditate. If you want to prosper in your Christian life, I mean spiritually prosper. I want to prosper in my Christian life. Just like prosperity in the world, I want to prosper spiritually. And there's a great promise for me in Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. First of all, in verse 1 it says, I don't stand in the path of sinners. I don't sit in the seat of scoffers. And I don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. I don't listen to advice of wicked people. I don't spend my time, most of my time with sinners. I have to go to work. But other than that, I don't sit with people who mock the things of God. But I spend my time, verse 2, Delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it. So you read a verse like, uh, he passed through their midst and went away. You don't, you stop there and you meditate on it as I just told you. And you do that with every verse that you read. It says here, here's the wonderful promise, verse three, last part. Whatever you do, you will prosper. I've experienced it. Because 
I avoid the ways of sinful people. Verse 1. And I meditate. I don't just read the scripture. I meditate on it. I'll tell you honestly, many, many days, I read only one verse in the morning. Because I want to meditate on it. And the result is, I prosper spiritually in my life. You know, just like the world appreciates millionaires who prospered materially, the equivalent in the church is people who are spiritually wealthy. Because a millionaire, I mean, if he's a generous man, he can help so many poor people. In the same way, if you prosper spiritually, you can be a blessing to hundreds and thousands of people. Just your one life. We read of one billionaire who supports so many programs for the poor. Just one man. There are many generous people like that. God can do that with you spiritually. One man. You spiritually prosper so much that through your one life, he blesses hundreds and thousands of people. Avoid the way of sinners. Meditate on the law of the Lord. Whatever you do, you will prosper. I can't imagine why people don't take these verses and say, Lord, make it true in my life. I read Luke 24. It's another passage I've often thought of. And I mentioned it here once before, I think. Luke 24, on the day of the resurrection, it says here in Luke 24, verse 13, is the first day, Sunday, Jesus had just risen from the dead. And there were two men, two of them, we don't know whether they were men, it could be a husband and wife, two disciples, who were walking from Emmaus to Jerusalem, where it says here, seven miles. And they were talking with each other. That seven miles is important for me. I say, okay, seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, they were walking. And while they were talking and walking, Jesus approached them and he walked that whole distance all the way to Emmaus. So then I begin to meditate and say, well, how long does it take to walk from, walk seven miles I say, if there is a leisurely walk, I presume it would have taken about three hours. It's a result of meditating on it instead of skipping through that verse. Okay, it took three hours. And what were they discussing in these three hours? It says here that Jesus, he opened the scriptures, verse 27, beginning with Moses, Genesis, all the way to Malachi. He explained to them in those three hours Things concerning Jesus in the scriptures. He went to Genesis 3 and showed them how there was a prophecy that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And he said, that's me, you know, Jesus said. All the way up to Malachi where it speaks of the son, S-U-N, of righteousness. That's me. And the serpent lifted up in the wilderness, the devil defeated on the cross, the rock smitten. That's the Lord Jesus said, that's me. And all through the scripture. 
So from Genesis to Malachi, he showed them not interesting stories, but Jesus. That's what it says. Beginning with Moses, verse 27, and all the prophets, all the way to Malachi, he explained to them things concerning himself. That is Christ in all the scriptures. And Jesus explained to them as they walked and walked and walked and walked. What a wonderful Bible study. That must have been three hours of Bible study in the Old Testament. They didn't go to every chapter, but he showed them, this is me, this is me, this is me, this is me. And I remember when I left the Navy and I came out to serve the Lord and I didn't know where to go. And a lot of people told me, Brother Zach, if you want to really serve the Lord, you must go to a Bible school. Get a degree. Then only people will listen to you. Well, I looked in the Bible and I found not a single apostle went to a Bible school. I looked in the Old Testament. Elijah and Elisha never went to a Bible school. All the, all the prophets never went to a Bible school. John the Baptist didn't go to a Bible school. But I read that in the time of Samuel, he started a Bible school for the people. It's called the School of the Prophets. You read that in Samuel. And there they will be given degrees and diplomas. And every one of them, those are the false prophets you read of in the Old Testament. Because they had a degree from the Bible school. And the kings would say, oh, this guy is a prophet because he's got a degree from the Bible school. And they were the false prophets you read of many times in the Old Testament who tried to lead the kings astray and the true prophet would come and say something else. So I said, I don't want to go to Bible school. <laughs> There's a warning against it in, to me in the these examples. I want to, I saw here that Jesus could teach these people walking with him. I said, Lord, you're alive today and you walk with me and teach me. I thank God I never went one single day to a Bible school. I said, Lord, you walk with me every day. Talk to me. I remember that's what I did when I was in the Navy. As soon as I got up in the morning, I was single those days before I went to work at nine o'clock. As soon as I got up in the morning, I don't know, six, six thirty, I would kneel down on my beside my bed and pray for some time and then get up and take my Bible and sit at the table with a notebook and read and say, now Lord Jesus, teach me. That's how I learned the Bible. And I spent seven years in the Navy and the Lord taught me this Bible from cover to cover. It just takes a little bit of discipline. Is it difficult for you to just say, cut out half an hour of your sleep? You're not going to die if you cut out half an hour of your sleep. The normal time you get up, you decide to get up half an hour earlier. Or the normal time you go to bed, you decide to spend, go to bed half an hour later. You won't die by losing half an hour of sleep. And you say, I'm going to spend that time every day to let Jesus open up the scriptures, not from Genesis to Malachi, but at least from Matthew to John, four chapters. Show me Jesus. Show me, Lord, how you lived on this earth. And show me in the epistles what you do now when you're at the right hand of the throne of God. If you start doing that from today, I'll tell you, you'll be physically healthier too. You'll live long. Because when your spiritual life is revived, it affects your physical life too. 
And on top of that, you will be a blessing to many, many people, starting with one or two or three, and going on to multitudes. That's how it was with me. In those days, I knew very little. If I got a chance to speak to somebody, I, I remember once I was in the naval base and I went to a nominal Christian. And I said, hey, can we have a Bible study in your house once a week, according to your convenience, maybe just half an hour? Oh, he said, sure. So we fixed a day and I would go to his house and whatever I learned from this sitting up, getting up in the morning and spending a little time, I would share with him. And he said, can we call some others to listen to this next week? I said, sure. It was effortless for me. And he would call some others. And we spent about two or three years like that. And that person finally got converted, born again, baptized. And when he left the Navy, he went out to serve the Lord. I'm so thankful that I went and asked him, can we have a little Bible study in your house? And he was not even born again then. He was just a nominal Christian. There are friends that you have that you can turn to the Lord just by a little, little, when you see a little opening there. Very often I pray, Lord, give me an opening to somebody to give them a little track perhaps or speak a little word for Christ. Sitting in a plane sometimes, you know, we don't, we don't want, I don't want to thrust the gospel on the chap sitting next to me in the plane. I want to know, first of all, whether he's interested in hearing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go and say, hey, I want to tell you something. No. If I see an opening there, then I would tell him. So, one way I do it is, you know, you can open your Bible, sit in the chair and put your table down and open the Bible. You'll know whether the guy is interested in or not and if he responds or, well, it can work the other way also. I didn't have my Bible, but I had my phone and I was holding it like this and reading in such a way that if he wanted, he could read too. <laughs> it was the Bible. I had the Bible on my phone <laughs> and I was reading and after some time, I found he got a little un uncomfortable and he, he went forward and told his wife, please exchange seats with me. And he, I knew he was not interested. Fine. So I didn't, could leave him alone. I tried. And he'll remember that in the day of judgment. And the Lord will tell him, I kept a servant of mine next to you to try and tell you about the Savior. Because you were not interested. See, the Lord, Paul says, to some we are a savor of death and to others a savor of life. You read that in, I think in 2 Corinthians 2. We're not going to bring everybody to Christ. I think of this verse in Luke's Gospel in chapter 2 where Simeon, the old Simeon, saw the baby Jesus and he made a prophecy concerning Jesus. And what did he say when he picked up the baby and he told Mary afterwards in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2? He says in verse 34 to Mary, Luke 2, 34, This child is appointed 
and not everybody will rise up. Some will fall down because this child came into the midst. He'll be a blessing to many and raise them up. But others will fall down. So this child is set for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. So I recognize that as a servant of the Lord, as a disciple of Jesus, as I mingle with people, and I don't necessarily have to preach. If I get the opportunity, I share a word. If I don't get an opportunity, I just sit quiet and try to reflect Christ by some way or the other. And uh, I realize some will rise and some will fall. I know that. I've, I've been in churches and I've preached and some have risen to a wonderful godly life and others have got angry with what I've preached and cursed me and fallen away. You'll find that if you go to the internet and put my name up there, you'll see there are people cursing me and there are people who are thanking me. It's exactly like here. Set for the rise and the fall of many. That's how Jesus is my example. And I want to say to every one of you, dear brothers and sisters, God wants to fulfill something through you before you leave this earth. And if you have never taken it seriously till today, please take it seriously from today. God wants your life to prosper. Meditate on God's word. Let Jesus who opened the scriptures to those two disciples and to Emmaus. I personally believe they were a husband and wife. Because finally it says that he went into their home and had a meal with them. So I presume it was a husband and wife. The thing is, whenever we read disciples, we think it's always men. We are, men are so conceited that we think disciples means it must be men. Why can't a woman be a disciple? Sure, two disciples walked to Emmaus. It could be a husband and wife. Because they went into a home and they had a meal there. And Jesus went in with them. But he opened up the scriptures to them. And I want to say to you, he's the same yesterday, today and forever. He wants to open up the scriptures to you as well. Please take time every day to spend a little time to with the scriptures and say, Lord, show me Jesus here. Show me how he lived. Show, show me how he never got offended with anyone. I'll give you one more example. And then I'll close. Matthew chapter 12. We read here a demon-possessed person. This is an amazing person who was not only blind, but he was deaf and dumb as well. Blind, deaf and dumb. Matthew, sorry, 12, and Matthew 12, verse 22, a demon-possessed man who was both blind and mute was brought to Jesus and Jesus healed him immediately. He could see and he could speak and he could hear. And the crowds were absolutely amazed. This is the son of David. But the Pharisees, who were jealous, remember what Simeon said, some will rise and some will fall. So a lot of those Crowds, a lot of people rose, but the Pharisees fell. They said, no, 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 this is the head of the demons. Beelzebul, it's another word, another name for the devil. This is Satan personified in flesh. Imagine calling Jesus that. And Jesus said, you know what he said? Verse 32. 
whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, as you did just now, it's forgiven. I see Jesus there. I've been called the devil at different times, even in published literature. I said, okay, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to forgive the person. I see Jesus. You have an answer to every situation if you've seen Jesus. And, you know, when people criticized Moses, like Miriam, she got leprosy. In the Old Testament, when some people made fun of Elisha, after Elijah had gone up, there were some young men who made fun of Elisha and said, oh, say, you also go up, you bald man. And it says, bears came from the wilderness and ate up those men. It's dangerous to speak against the servant of God. And here they were speaking against the son of God, the devil. They didn't get leprosy, bears didn't come, they got forgiveness. That's new covenant. He says the blood of Jesus, Hebrews 12, speaks better things than the blood of Abel. That's the verse in Hebrews chapter 12. The blood of Jesus, better than the blood of Abel, fell to the ground. Cain killed him. And God said to Cain, the blood of your brother is crying to me from the ground. No blood can speak. The first time you read a blood speaking is Genesis 4. God said, the blood of Abel is crying out to me from the ground. What is it crying? Take revenge. Take revenge on the one who spilt me here. And God cursed Cain. And he became a wanderer. Years later, 4,000 years later, the blood of Jesus fell to the ground. Hebrews 12 says, that's also crying out something. Not take revenge. Forgive them, Father. Forgive them. Forgive them. When people hurt us spiritually, I mean, not physically shedding our blood, but hurting us in some way, what is the cry that goes up from us? I hope it's not the cry of Cain, of Abel rather, but of Jesus. Forgive them. Father, forgive them. As soon as they hurt us, forgive them. But more than that, what I saw in verse 32, if you read, this is where the advantage of reading slowly. Read the Bible slowly. Whoever speaks, he's not telling those Pharisees alone. He said, you guys just call me the devil. That's okay. You're forgiven. Whoever speaks means for the next 2,000 years. Whoever speaks something against Jesus, me, it's already forgiven. This is what I call future forgiveness. I practice that. I do follow Jesus, you know. Looking unto Jesus, we run this race, and I see one of the things Jesus did was he forgave people in the future. They hadn't yet done it, but he forgave them. He was going to be crucified years later, but he forgave them right here. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man is forgiven. So I said, it's going to be true of me too. Whoever speaks against Zach Poonin or does anything against Zach Poonin is forgiven already. It may be he's going to do it only next year, but he's already got, I've already forgiven him. So whenever I hear that somebody 
comes and tells me, do you know, Brother Zach, somebody wrote an article against you. I say, yeah, I forgave them long ago. I say, how do you do that? He wrote it only last week. Yeah, yeah, but I did that long ago. I follow Jesus who practiced future forgiveness. I encourage all of you to do that. Your life will be a happier life. God bless you.